Uh, today's scripture comes from Acts 1, and I'm going to just read first eight verses. Acts 1, first eight verses. If you're there, um, let me just read. I'll read the ESV version. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, this morning... Uh, Pastor Joel is, I've, I've said this for Ingu and James and Joel, uh, one of my closest friends uh, in ministry. Um, he is actually leaving in two weeks after how many years now, Joel? 11, 11 years of serving at Onuri Church and planting a church called Gospel City in Itaewon, now in Yongsan. And um, we've been friends since he first arrived, you know, basketball and relationship and things like that. And our relationship really bloomed through church planting. Joel knows uh, as much as about our church as much as me because we're always sharing all the pain and all the joys and celebration. We've done that together. And I'm just grateful for not just um, our friendship, but his willingness to come. He's got so much going on. He's leaving in two weeks, like moving his, his whole family has moved and his wife's coming, all these things. Uh, Joel is a wonderful, wonderful uh, preacher. He's a wonderful, wonderful father of three children. Um, he has twin boys, Judah and Jonah, and then Kira, who is a bit older. She's in her middle school, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Uh, and Sharon, who is a wonderful wife and... Um, just, a, just an amazing, amazing pastor who, who loves Jesus, and I've witnessed it, you know, walking with him. So I'm just really excited, even though all, all that going, I'm excited that Joel's the one who's going to be able to give the word in a morning, morning like this. Here's Joel. <laughs> Let's give him one, one welcome. Lots going on. Um, I mean, my heart's heavy. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when Sangman called me this morning, he's like, uh, so should we change the, the sermon topic? And I thought about it. And uh, the topic today is what is the church? You know, um, who is this the church? Who is the church? And as I thought about it for just a moment, and I thought, no, I think we should stick on, stay on topic. Because my hope is through this word, uh, you're reoriented. You know, the theme is being rewired. And my hope is that you are reminded, but also convicted, that it's in times like this 
when we see the brokenness of this world. Uh, we were worshiping at the Hamilton Hotel. Uh, this happened right, right in the alleyway. We were, uh, you know, if I was preaching at Hamilton today, it would be right behind me you know, on that street. And the, really the question ends up being, um, what are we supposed to do in a time like this? Uh, where chances are we are one or two degrees removed from someone who is there. And so with that, I would love to pray for us and ask the Lord to minister to us. Father, we admit it is so easy to just do church, to look for that preacher and to look for that church, that culture, that group of people where when I go in, oh, I can, I, I can identify with this group. And yes, those things are important, but may we remember today what the purpose of the church is and how God, you designed it and how this church is the hope of the world in its, in its locality where King's Cross resides. May they know that they are empowered. May they know that they are they have a, a supernatural gift within them. And my hope and prayer is that it's not just an uplifting sermon. God, my prayer, our prayer is that there is a reorientation to understand that this local church has a purpose. And God, each and every single one of us, whatever we've been through, we have a purpose. And God, Impress that upon our hearts today. You say that you are near the brokenhearted. God, many of us are broken. This nation's broken. It's in a time like this, this nation will be sensitive to you. In a generation where people are leaving the church, may this tragedy somehow, some way, build up the church. And may the church, God, be compassionate in this time, not judging because they were in Itaewon. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to start off with something a little lighthearted. Um, the movie Up. In the movie Up, uh, if you've seen it, it's this Pixar film. And the first 10 minutes or so uh, portray uh, this man Carl and his life. Carl's the guy, right? Or is Carl the kid? The old man. The old man, and in the first 10 minutes, some people say it's the best 10 minutes of cinematic history. And people would argue, well, how can it be a, a, you know, it's this great film when you don't, you're not even using cameras, it's, it's all digital, it's all cartoons. But if you've watched it, chances are you shed a tear in the first 10 minutes. This is probably one of the few films I actually kind of broke down because uh, it resonates so much, this preciousness of life. And so this old man, the, you know, the whole movie is about this old man, you know, taking his house with a bunch of balloons out to South Africa uh, to do this expedition, to do this journey. And if you were to start the movie at the point where he meets that little uh, chubby Asian boy, Right, and they together, you know, take this home across the world. If you started at that moment, you would still enjoy the film, 
but it's the ten, first 10 minutes you see the heart. It's the first 10 minutes that give everything else meaning. If you start it with the boy and the, and the balloons going up, it's exciting. You'll enjoy it, but you miss the heart behind it. And I think so often that's what we do with church. We look for the things that we want, forgetting God's heart for the church. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you don't know God's heart for the church, you will go to church for all the wrong reasons. And I think in light of everything that's happened in Itaewon this weekend, we can all agree it is the church that's the hope of the world. And my hope is in that mindset of understanding how important the church is, that we can understand you. You are the church. And so you, to be able to respond and receive this. So the, really the question is, not what, what, do you, what do you want for the church? Not what Pastor Sangmin's vision is for the church. Not what I think church should be. Not yeah, the things that you've looked for from your home churches. The question that we want to ask is, what is God's design? And what is God's heart for the church? Because that's what matters. So, so as we begin... I'm going to ask uh, three questions. The first is, whose is the church? Whose is the church? Grammatically, I'm not sure if that's right. It sounds all off, but at least you get the point. Whose is the church? So in Acts 1, 1 to 5, let me read a portion of this. Whose is the church? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so if you don't have your Bibles open, the, the verses will not be up here. Uh, what I really encourage people to do is get comfortable with opening up uh, the, the Bible on your phone and, and just uh, learning to interact with it. So if you haven't opened up your Bibles to Acts, I'm going to be referencing Acts a lot. So go ahead and open up to Acts 1. And he says, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given th uh, commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The first book that he's referencing, do you know which one it is? The book of Luke, right? It's in that book he talks to eyewitnesses, and the purpose of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is that Theophilus and all those who would read it, the goal is not that you would just believe, but the goal was that you would have certainty, that they would believe. And so he would talk to eyewitnesses. Luke was not a disciple. And so he talked to eyewitnesses, gathering accounts. He was a physician. So he was, uh, he was intelligent. He knew how to organize. And so as he did this, that's what he's referring to. And then from there he says, until the day that he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And it's very clear that even in Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit was a part of that ministry. But what he's also saying now is that as Jesus has died and resurrected, the Holy Spirit still continues. You can consider it this way. The Gospel of Luke is Jesus' ministry on, here on earth about the cross and how he was going to pay the penalty, live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus has risen 
and resurrected. He's not saying Jesus' ministry is now complete. He's clarifying, though he is not present with us, he has risen, and now it's what we would call his resurrection ministry. It's his ministry up on the right, on, on the right hand of God, interceding for us, sending the Holy Spirit, and still working. And so it says, the commands he has given through the Holy Spirit. And the reality is, is that is exactly what he is doing now. That Jesus ministers to you. Through broken people, Pastor Sungman shared very nice words about me. I'm a broken sinner, saved by the grace of God. And I know that when I preach, that I have preached some horrible sermons, but it's in that you recognize God still works. And so Jesus' story is not complete. He is still working. So in verse 4, what do you see? And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, for which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus is being very, very, very clear. I am still working. Though you can't see me, I am still working. So you must wait for the Holy Spirit. And what you see in the book of Acts are all these disciples. And if you didn't have the gospel of Luke, if you didn't know what they were like pre-Holy Spirit, you would think just right by reading the book of Acts that these are some amazing and godly people. But what you see happen are before the cross, they were fools. Where Jesus would have to repeat the same lesson over and over and over. If some of you are teachers, you understand this. You teach the lesson over and over and over. Some of you are in some sort of leadership role. You understand that you can say many things over and over and over, but they don't hear it, and you are frustrated. And that's the picture of the disciples. They hear, they hear the week of when Jesus tells him about the crucifixion. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. And then you see in the book of Acts, Peter, right, Thomas, you see these men living completely different lives. You see Stephen, right, when he is first martyred in Acts 7, you see it on the screen. While he was being stoned, in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If you know the Gospels, you recognize these words sound very familiar. Because if we don't have the Gospels, what we would think about Stephen is, oh, what a godly man. Look at this dude. And you start to compare your life to Stephen and recognize, oh, I'm no Stephen. But you have to recognize the Holy Spirit comes and then they completely change. Because these words are reminiscent of Christ himself when he was being crucified in Luke 23. Same author helping you connect those dots. 
saying, don't look up to Stephen. Stephen was just like one of us, one of the bumbling idiots of a disciple. Don't look up to him. So Luke is making it very, very, very clear. This man, the first martyr, oh, there's nothing good in him. And even what he does, all he is doing is doing his best impressions of Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now resides in him. And so those words are now what Jesus initially had said, Father, in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 2346, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. And Luke's goal is not to elevate these apostles to say, wow, look at these godly men. Now, all he's doing is very clear from Acts 1 that the Holy Spirit comes, and now they are imitators of Christ. They were just like you and me. Same doubts, same struggles, same questions. Did he really resurrect? Until I put my hands on his finger and his side, then I will believe the words of Thomas. It's Thomas, because of the Holy Spirit, goes to the farthest of all the disciples, to, to, to India. You start to recognize it's never about the disciples, but their understanding of Christ and Christ's ministry through them. This is Jesus' church. King's Cross is Jesus' church. Through all the good, through all the bad, it's Jesus' church. So much so that Jesus himself, as many of you know, he identifies with the church. When Paul or Saul persecutes the church, Jesus so identifies with the church when Jesus approaches, confronts Saul, and when Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whose church is it? Oh, it's Jesus' church. And so Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is Jesus' church. Every pastor knows it. I know I, I talk with a lot of uh, church members. <clears throat> and they're so disappointed by the church today, right? They've been hurt by the church. Many leaders have failed them. The church that I was a part of has gone through a lot, basically imploded. It was 1,000 plus people. Today it's about maybe 150 because of toxicity and abuse. And so many people are upset, so many people are angry. And they ask me, how does, this, how does God allow this to happen? Is God not working in the church today? And what I always want to tell them is like, man, you have no idea how broken the church is. You have no idea how broken I am. Because to me, the fact that I am a preacher and a pastor is the stupidest thing. Because I was on your side, and I would look up to pastors. And yes, they're wise, and they should be above reproach, and all of that. But I remember the first Sunday I preached, <laughs> I was sitting down the week before, 
And then the week after, I'm here like some, some authority figure. And then people would say, oh, I was blessed by that sermon, thinking, what? <laughs> and every pastor has this story. Even this past week with the, the, the other pastors in Korea, we had gathered and uh, we had talked about just the hardships of ministry. I think that's like the theme every month, the hardships of ministry. <clears throat> and one of the struggles that one person mentioned is, yeah, you know, it's so crazy is that yeah, as I preach, even in my worst sermons, like people will come up to me and say, oh, I was so blessed by that sermon. And literally every pastor's head's like, yep, <laughs> been there. Because for me, as I'm preaching, I recognize, oh, I'm not connecting. I'm not, I'm not being clear. I see heads nodding. Not because they're agreeing, <laughs> but they're nodding because they can't engage. And all I want to do is finish the sermon and literally just go to the car and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I just want to run away. But in my desire to, to cover and, and, and protect myself and to not engage, people will come up to me and be like, oh, God spoke. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Did you hear what I said? And then, you know what happens in my mind? I'm like, oh, I guess God's real. <laughs> I guess God's real. And to me, what's so amazing is not that how many churches have failed, how many pastors have failed. What's amazing to me is as the, as the church fails and as pastors fail, throughout history, you see the church growing. And that's when for all of us who are ministers on some sort of vocational level, we can say, oh, we are not the Christ. God is still working. And we can trust that he works in you through all my failures, through all of Pastor Sungman's failures, to know that God is working. Elijah, he was a well-known prophet. Many consider him this magician of a prophet, if you will. And when, in, well, in one well-known account, when he's battling the spiritual battle, that he's battling 500 prophets of Baal, right? They're taunting each other. This is spiritual trash talk at its best, right? One group is saying, no, our God is better. Elijah's saying, no, 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 my God is better. And so what the ultimate diss, the ultimate mic drop, after the, the Baal prophets cannot light their sacrifices, what does Elijah do with his sacrifice? Pours water, drenches water on it. I kind of think it was like gasoline, but <laughs> pours water on it, right? Lights it, right? And, it, and, and God comes in one sense. And, it, and, it, and the wording is the God, God licks it up, right? It's like God is so a part of that. And you would think Elijah from this is on the spiritual high. But the very next section is about his spiritual depression. He goes off. And that's often many of our stories. It's actually going to be after a retreat. When you feel so high, you're going to feel so empty. There's going to be a real struggle. And so for Elijah, it's in that, right? And you know the story. The earthquake, the fire, the wind, and God is not in that. But it's, it's, it's in this quiet whisper. The re but the reason I bring that up 
is Elijah the whole time, he says, I'm the only one left. God, I'm the only one left. God, where are you? I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. I'm fighting these 500 prophets of Baal. He feels so alone. And that's when God comforts him, ministers to him. And then he says at the very end of that, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal that you have no idea that I have saved and I'm working in. And that's what Elijah needed to hear. Oh, this is not your ministry. This is not your church. Pastors will come and go. So my question to you is, do you truly believe that Jesus is the head of the church? He is also the foundation. And for you to recognize that he has called you to be the church. Whose church is this? It's not Pastor Sangmin's church. It's not the elders' church. If anything, it's the members' church. But even that, it is Christ's church. That's the head, and so we must hear how he has designed the church. So who is the church? It's Christ's church. And then the next question is not what is the church, but I think a better question is who is the church? Who is the church? Going back to verse 3, he presents himself alive after his sufferings, by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. You would think that as Jesus appears to them, I mean, would it be, it'd be pretty cool if I could just sit down and I say, okay, Jesus, please take the next point. And he does, and he shows you this is, this is where it was, the nail marks. You see this? This is, this is where I was pierced. You see the feet? And then he would teach about the kingdom of God. So you would think the evidence that they were exposed to and all the wisdom and truth that Jesus taught would be sufficient for them to go out to be witnesses. So you would think after verse 3, showing himself, uh, showing the, the sufferings, uh, teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, you would think that that short Seminary education would be enough for them to go out. But what does he say in verse 4? And so after doing all these things, stay. Why? Because reason is not enough to be a disciple. Evidence is not enough to be a disciple. And this is why for us, when we try to understand Christianity simply by our heads, it always falls short. Yes, Christianity is a reasonable faith. Yes, we need to do apologetics, understand how, how it is that we believe what we believe. But Jesus is very clear that all the evidence that you see, all the reason that you have, all the apologetic knowledge that you know, all the biblical inspirational truth that you are aware of, that you have believed, is not enough for you to be a disciple. And so he says in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them, because I'm sure they felt like, oh, this is it, Jesus is real, let's go, let's go. And Jesus says, whoa, hold your horses. You think your intellect and your reason is enough 
for what we're about to do, reason is important. But it is a spiritual work that we are doing. So he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Don't go. Wait for the Spirit. And then in verse 6, it says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed for its own authority. So they are supposed to wait for the Spirit, and they think, okay, now this is the time when Jesus will come and he will restore the kingdom. And this is what I want you to walk away with. That you're not supposed to await the kingdom, but when the Spirit comes, you're supposed to go and bring the kingdom. And if you, if you start to understand that's what church is, it'll change, reorient the whole idea of what church is. Because the whole idea, like for us, if we want God to do things here, we want God to do things in our lives, that's exactly what the, the, the disciples were saying. When the kingdom comes, when will it come? And Jesus doesn't even answer that question. He says, oh, you got it all wrong. You think you're supposed to be passive agents in the kingdom of God. You think you're supposed to be passive agents in the church. He says, no. Wait for the Spirit, and when I say go, you go. Because we don't wait for the kingdom, no. We're supposed to go and bring the kingdom. And so when they hear in verse 8, so you will receive power. They're probably thinking, oh yeah, that's right. We're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what? Holy Spirit, God himself will come upon us? And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria. They would understand Jerusalem. Yeah, come, Jesus, to Jerusalem. Restore this kingdom. And, and then it continues on to Judea, to Samaria. Wait, wait, what? We're bringing the kingdom there to the ends of the earth. It's at that point they start to understand, oh, we've got it all wrong. We think we come to church to get blessed, and that's it. And they recognize, oh, church is not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all is not, God, what are you going to do for me? But after they receive, go and be disciples. So if you see the whole flow of chapters 1 and 2, it helps you understand. This is, chapters 1 and 2 is the first 10 minutes of the movie up. This is where you get the heart. So if you just follow along with me in the book of Acts, 1 to 5 of chapter 1. Wait for the Spirit, 6 to 11. The Spirit will empower you to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Chapter 2, 1 to 13. When the Spirit comes and fills them to be witnesses to the end of the earth, they ask, what does this mean? Because they're asking each other this, this, this language that they're speaking. So you have to ask the question, what's the purpose of the Spirit? What does this mean? And then 14 to 41, the Spirit comes empowers the disciples for mission. 41-47, the church gathers to worship and strengthen the body for mission. So I just want to give a clear definition of what the church is. Who is the church? You could take a picture of this if you'd like, take notes. The church is the gathering of spirit-empowered witnesses of the gospel sent on mission. 
The church is a gathering of spirit-empowered witnesses of the gospel sent on mission. But the way that we often think about the church is we can take this portion out, right? The church is a gathering of spirit-empowered witnesses of the gospel, and that's it. But what you will see is in verse 1. It's all about wait, wait for the spirit, wait for the spirit. Then the disciples ask, okay, when are you going to come and restore the kingdom? Oh, you got it all wrong. You're not going to wait for the kingdom. You're going to go and bring the kingdom. Because that's the whole part of it. And this idea of being spirit-powered is crucial. Because knowledge is not enough. Evidence is not enough. Good intentions are not enough. Courage is not enough. You need the spirit. And so when you hear that, the question, the response will be, well, am I? Am I empowered by the spirit? Because we don't believe we're empowered by the Spirit, we don't go on mission. Isn't that how it works? Because we start to realize what we lack in, whether it's reason, whether it's biblical knowledge, we have a lot of reasons, you and I, don't we? Of why we're not sent on mission. Because we don't believe we're Spirit-empowered. But let me challenge you with this. Don't wait to your spirit and power to go on mission. No, once you're on mission, you will realize your spirit empowered. This is every pastor. Because we have to come up every Sunday for a sermon. We have to, this morning, calling the, calling the other pastors, how are we going to respond? Because once you recognize your purpose in life, you start to realize the Spirit has been there all along. And once you are on mission, once you talk to that friend who questions Scripture, and they say, hey, you say you believe in the Trinity? Where does it say that in Scripture? Uh... So then... Maybe the next Sunday, Pastor Simon's talking about the Spirit or talking about the Trinity. Now you're taking notes. Where before you're like, oh, yeah, I know this. Yeah, God, Trinity, sure. But once you realize you are on mission, you have to understand that once you, not the pastors, yes, we are called on mission, but once you are, realize you are, and you actually do the mission, that's when the work of being the church, doing the church, comes to life. We try to do Acts 2 stuff, right? Get gathering, praying, being devoted to the apostles' preaching, which, which is what the next point is. We try to do all that stuff without being on mission. You know what that's like? It's like playing a sport but never playing the game. If you see uh, in Korea, Korea is like addicted to golf, Right? I see, you know, this is a lot of, anybody who plays sports, you, you just kind of see them, like, just the other day, I was coming out of the piano gym, and there's three guys. <laughs> Wherever they are. And you could think, whoa, look at these guys, so disciplined. No. Because they are thinking about that course they're going to go out on. Right? They need to know what they need to fix in their golf swing. It's like always practicing but never playing the game. You practice dribbling, practice dribbling. But you get to never play the game. 
But once you play the game and you realize, oh, my jump shot is off. Oh, my swing is off. Oh, I don't know how to do this chip shot. Once you play the game, you realize, oh, I need to practice. And if you're not on mission, ah, should I go to church today? I feel like I'm, I'm all right. Uh, should I really join a small group? Ugh. Should I read the Bible today? Well, but I'm telling you, once you're on mission, you're out there talking to your friends, you might even be persecuted because of your faith. That's when you go to your small group and you say, I'm going through a hard time at work. Because the game lets you realize how important practice is. This is practice. Practice, right? What's, what's practice all about? Right? You've heard that quote by a well-known athlete. Practice. What's the point? We're talking about the game. Yes, we're talking about the game. Once you realize, you, when you play the game, practice becomes vital. And not because you're disciplined, but you're like, oh, I, I got to fix this. Fix, fix this golf. So you do this all the time. So you'll see me randomly at a piano jump. Like, oh, I got to use my hips more. And you'll think, oh, he's so devoted to the practice of golf. No, I love the game of golf, so I'm going to practice and practice and practice. When you're on mission, when you see someone come to faith, when you can help someone through a hard time because of the scripture and the, and the quiet time that you did that morning, you know what happens? You read the Bible a little bit differently. You have to go on mission. This is how what we think, right? Once we're empowered, then I'll go on mission. Reality, once you are on mission, then you will realize you are spirit-empowered. And realize there is this gift of God God has given to you. It's in you. Do you believe that? Can you tell your neighbor it's in you? God is in you. God is in you. It's awkward. You'd probably never do this here. But there's things that I just want our church people to take away from, to home. And so this is the awkward moment that will lead to some sort of lasting impression. That God is in you. And when you are on mission and you're challenged, that's when you realize, oh, I need to go to church. That's when you realize the Apostles' Creed that we just professed. You, you profess it with your heart. Not just because it's a thing. No, you realize you believe something crazy. And so we profess it all the time. And there's a conviction when you hear that. If you are not on mission, Christianity becomes stale. Christianity becomes stale. If Christianity has become boring to you, you will wonder what's the point of it all. Lastly, what does the church do? What does the church do? So whose is the church? It's Christ's church. Who is the church? It's a gathering of spirit-empowered believers on mission. What does the church do? Acts 2, if you can uh, move forward in, that, in this verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came, came upon every soul, and, and, what, many wondered, uh, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is the passage that all Christians refer to in terms of what the church should be doing. 
And this is good and right. But if you're not on mission, this stuff becomes inconveniences in life. And you've recognized that via COVID. Because it was real nice turning TV on, wasn't it? It was real nice not to go to that space all the way. And you realize this stuff is actually very difficult to be devoted daily to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Right, the church, this is what I would say the practices of the church, that the church is daily devoted to teaching, fellowship, sharing meals or sharing life, and prayer. And this is hard because for many of us, we've built up habits during COVID where we're, well, all we're thinking about lately is how to do Christianity conveniently. So this idea of being rewired is, I think, so key. Because if you want comfortable and convenient Christianity, what's going to happen is you're going to start to evaluate everything. Which church should I go to? How far will it be? What time do they have service? Not bad things to think about. But you also start to think about, what ministry will I join? You start to think about, what small group will I be a part of? Because we love to be comfortable, which is, again, is not a bad thing. What I'm telling you, though, is that if we're looking for convenient things within the church, you know what's convenient? Not going to church. Right? You skipped a Sunday. Chances are most of you have. When I do, I'm like, whoa, my weekend just doubled in terms of time. And you realize because we get caught up in wanting to make life efficient and comfortable, again, not a bad thing. What I'm saying, though, is if you're not on mission, then all these things just become inconveniences that you're trying to hurdle as opposed to necessities of life. And once it becomes a necessity of life, you fight for it. Just like the person who has water on tap will never think about the, the hurdles of drinking water. But if you are ever in a place, you go camping, and you realize you're running out of water, and you have to get water that's two miles away. It's going to be inconvenient, but you'll get it. Why? Because you know you need it. And the question is, do you know you need the church? My challenge to you is not, be disciplined, church. Be devoted to the apostles' teachings. Yeah, go do it. No. If you don't know you need it, you're not going to do it. But once you're on mission, you realize you're, not, you're in the world but not of the world. That's when you come to church a little bit differently, a little bit more thirsty. That's when you can love that neighbor because you understand the struggles that they go through because you go through similar struggles. The goal is not Acts 2. The goal is not Acts 2. The goal is not the fellowship, the being devoted to the teachings, to the Lord's Supper, to prayer. That's not the goal. It's the how. How do you be effective on mission? That's the how. So once you are on mission, then you can do these four. Just like any sport. No one becomes that disciplined. No, they go play the game. They realize this is what I need to work on, and you work on it. You go and share the gospel, and you fumble with your words, and you realize, what is the gospel? And you go deeper down. And that's why Jesus, when he says to make disciples of all nations, he doesn't say teach them the doctrines. He says what? Teach them to obey. 
meaning you have to learn, you have to obey, you have to teach them to obey. Jesus, the first time, the first time in all of scripture that the word church is used, it's in Matthew 6.18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. How does he do that? How does he build up the church? Well, he's the foundation, is he not? He gives up his life. He is the cornerstone. None of this is possible apart from his life. He brings us into the family. And he says, I will build up my church. Through all the times the church has gotten it wrong, whether it's doctrine, right, whether it's going and conquering na other nations, realizing that's not how you expand the kingdom of God. When you see church history, you realize how broken it is. And then you realize, oh, God will build his church. And though we have expectations of churches and church leaders, we have to have the same expectations of ourselves. Will you be on mission? For you are the church. Let's pray. As we are being rewired via this retreat, you can rewire all you want, but if you think a Game Boy can become a computer, you can rewire all you want. It will never become its purpose. Once you realize your purpose, you start to naturally rewire. There, as you go back to Seoul today, as you go to your workplaces, this will be the talk of the town. What happened in Itaewon? My question is, do you see that you are on mission? Do you realize that you, not the pastors, you do the work of the ministry. You are the hope for Korea. You are on mission. So I challenge you, pray for tomorrow. When you think about the workplace, will you live differently? Will you be more intentional? It's scary. People will judge you. You may even suffer consequences in your workplace because of your faith. But I'm telling you, once you are on mission, the church comes alive. Pray for tomorrow, pray for this week, and ask the Lord how you should be on mission in light of all the tragedies that Korea has experienced this weekend.